I'm gonna bring on this wonderful panel. I don't know how it got to be all women. How'd that happen? Yeah. <laughs> um, first, um, I'd like Rashida Bumbre from um, Open Society Foundation. She's the Director of Culture and Art. Um, Arisha Hatch, Vice President, Chief of Campaigns for Color Change. And Mary Holmes, Director and Founder of the Black Star Film Festival. Worldwide, I wanna say in Philly, but y'all are so worldwide. Thank you, Stacey King, for the Macro Lodge. This has been like just a home for so many of us, definitely for Color of Change. I'm a board member of Color of Change, as Rashad said, and I'm honored to moderate this panel. Okay, so I wanna start with the basic. Um, I'd like for all of you to tell us where you're from and uh, how that may have shaped your relationship to culture, the art, and politics, where you're at Sundance. And while we will talk broadly about the intersection of arts, culture, and politics, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are at a film festival um, that hasn't always been incredibly inclusive. And we know that film is America's chief export, um, the propaganda that, quite frankly, is Hollywood. I mean, besides debt, America's basically only selling its propaganda at this point. For those of us who know we're owned by the Chinese at this point. Um, <laughs> so um, I would love to know if you had a chance to see a film here that has moved you. Um, and if not, what films in the past year um, have you been thinking about that have been informing your work? I'll start with you, Maori, for sure. <laughs> well, I feel like there's three questions. There are. That, so where so. are you from okay. and how did that shape your culture? Um, I mean, your idea of this intersection of culture, politics, and art. And yeah, absolutely. The last question for you. I mean, your curatorial practice is one that I have like really admired. How it's grown. Black Star Film Festival is, I think, the most important like Black film festival of all time. <laughs> um, you've done some amazing work in Philly. You've made a sojourn to hot ass Philly in August. Like important and essential. And so many filmmakers in this room got their first chance to exhibit at your festival. So please. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm originally from Los Angeles. I went to high school in Atlanta, and I ended up in Philly going to grad school at Temple. So I feel like I'm from all of those places and also DC. My grandmother and mother are both artists, and so grew up with a strong sense of belonging in artistic spaces. Um, and then also, I think from my grandfather, had a real strong sense of social justice. And so um, they were kind of both always there. Um, uh, in terms of film, um, I saw 40-Year-Old Version this morning. Um, I've been friends with Rada for a really long time, and I'm so happy to see that film. It was like such a, it was like a warm blanket, um, seeing, really felt like seeing myself up on the screen um, as a hip-hop person and all of those things. So um, I think that's answering it. Yeah, thanks. Um, my name is Arisha. Uh, I am the daughter of Patricia, a retired elementary school teacher, and the daughter of Ollie, a salesman. Uh, they're both from Texas. My mom was from a conservative county called Lampasas, or city called Lampasas in Texas, and my dad was from East Austin. He thinks of himself as the city boy, and she was like this country girl they met in college. Um, and my mom likes to tell the story about how my grandfather and my uncles forced my dad to go hunting just to see if he could hang before um, he was allowed to ask her to marry, which was like an interesting event in his life. Um, and so um, that's where I was born in Texas. My, my family moved um, to Southern California when I was about 10, outside of LA, way outside of LA. And so my relationship to politics specifically is as um, a person who was from a black family of registered Democrats, of voters, but who never got engaged because if you are a Democrat in Texas or a Democrat in Southern California in a conservative county in Southern California, a candidate's not gonna call your house. Um, uh, there's not gonna be a lot of organizing efforts. And so I never really considered myself political or woke. I didn't grow up with politics around the dinner table. I'm actually like really shocked to be doing racial justice work. I grew up understanding that I was supposed to be a lawyer, um, perhaps because my grandmother wasn't allowed to be or because my father couldn't afford to be. I understood this to be my purpose in life, maybe because I was like an argumentative little girl. They tell you to go to law school. 
um, when you do that. Um, and I thought I would be like Allie McBeal. Like that was the representation I grew up with. Like not necessarily a good lawyer, a rich lawyer would have been nice. Um, and so lots of men, a good lounge near my home with good singers, that sort of thing. Um, and so I didn't really grow up with a, a woke politic. Um, I grew up um, with a family that cared about each other, that responded to crises, but didn't necessarily like talk about politics, didn't talk about films around the dinner table. Um, and so um, this space is really new for me still even though I've been at Color of Change for more than eight years. And I think that there are a lot of people like me and my family who sort of like live out on the outskirts of politics and, and, and film, um, who aren't necessarily in the algorithm for who should be reached out to or whose stories should be told. Um, like I come from a family of black cowboys essentially. Um, um, and so that's how I come in to this work. Um, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., which I now call the city formerly known as Chocolate City, which is, you know, sad. Um, and so I totally related to the 40-year-old version, which I also saw this morning, just in terms of how do you negotiate gentrification in the act of your becoming. And so I have a real problem going home. My parents still live in D.C., um, and my father is from D.C., my grandfather's from D.C., my mother's from Harlem, um, but I grew up in the 80s in DC. So, you know, I went to a public elementary school where my two white teachers, one was an Egyptologist and one taught Swahili. <laughs> so it was very, um, you know, it felt like an African-centered school, even though it was a public school in the 80s in Washington, DC. Um, and my family, I always say, like, especially my mother's family has tried this American um, experiment in every way. So like my mother's sister was in the Black Panther Party. My mother went to law school. If I was a boy, I would have been named Marshall after Thurgood Marshall. My grandfather was a Tuskegee Airman. He fought in World War II, both of my grandfathers. And at one point on 125th Street, my grandfather was in the recruiting office down the street from the Black Panther office with it, where his daughter was. Um, and so, I always think about my identity as um, super American, and I was really pleased to hear Nicole Hannah-Jones talking about this, the 1619 Project at MLK Now, and she spoke about this narrative that we are all immigrants, um, which, you know, for black Americans, she said, that's actually not the narrative. After indigenous people, we've been here the longest, and I think that that's really interesting, because I always try to, um, you know, consider my sort of political orientation being like from my parents' generation, but I'm sure that it's actually um, stacked ancestral kind of um, intentions. So the, the sort of uh, moment of my coming into understanding of, of politics and culture was actually growing up in DC and two of my mother's best friends were like architects in the anti-apartheid movement and we'd be marching at the embassy I still have this Trans-Africa shirt that belonged to my brother, it's like this big. Um, and so I, we would sing songs. This happened at my church, Desmond Tutu came to our church, which is also the church where I learned to dance. Um, and so I, those things were always very collapsed, and so I never actually saw much of a distinction, uh, which I think is very black American. And I think we're gonna get into that later with a question. like This shift that has been quite jarring for those of us who were raised with a kind of Pan-African philosophy and aspiration and to see that shrinking in this moment. Um, but we'll get into that in a second. What was the moment, um, and I'll answer this for myself too, that sparked for you the interest of using art and culture to create change? I know that for me, like what you just said, Winnie uh, Manzella and the other spouses of um, what came to be known the 12 Disciples, their campaign to make um, the awareness of the political prisoners, in Winnie's case, of course, it was her husband, Nelson Mandela, um, their campaign to begin a, an economic boycott um, of companies that refused, the US companies that refused to divest from apartheid South Africa happened when I was in middle school. And um, it really shaped my thinking, you know, um, not just around like this idea that there's this larger world 
where um, white supremacist you know, crimes are being committed against black bodies. But there was also this strategy you know, that South Africans and members of the ANC were bringing to America and to deputies, you know, people like um, Harry Belafonte and Stevie Wonder, who ended up being the people that communicated to us. I can remember Stevie Wonder talking to Don Cornelius on Soul Train saying that, like, Shell Gas Company won't divest from um, apartheid South Africa. And I had a science project due, so I flipped over my big poster board and wrote, uh, you know, something about free South Africa and like went out in Detroit in February to the one shell gas station in my neighborhood and was like a one girl protest um, at 12. I didn't know then how franchises worked. That poor little Arab guy like had nothing to do with um, who owned that gas station, had nothing to do with it. Um, but it definitely, you know, we see the strategy of course employed by the color of change all the time. Um, of, of targeting the folks with the money. Um, and so that helped me, you know, having these ambassadors like Stevie Wonder and having Winnie and them behind this campaign. Can you think of a time that sparked for you that importance of that intersection between um, using culture, like employing it to create change? Um, I think um, a lot of it I took for granted. Like I said, my mother was a playwright, and so I had grown up going to summer camp with all these post-black arts you know, folks, and a lot of it was just sort of for granted. But I think when I became politicized myself, um, the first sort of glimmering is seeing Malcolm X, um, which I would have been about 14, I think, when it came out. Um, and then at that same time, I was also discovering like a tribe called Quest and De La Soul. And so thinking about all the books that were being related to in, in those lyrics. Um, and then I found my way to the Malcolm X grassroots movement in Atlanta and went on a um, environmental protest. And um, it was King Weekend and one of my best friends who all of us were, I didn't go to the arts high school, but I'd gotten in. And so most of my friends were at the arts high school. And, um, but we were all also reading on Sundays and like doing our like Africa study on Sundays. Um, and I remember one of them um, was arrested that weekend um, because he had just turned 18. Like literally his birthday was while we were in Alabama um, for this demonstration. And we were all moved into the 16th Street Baptist Church because there had been like a, um, we stormed City Hall, was part of the action, and then we were all pepper sprayed. And so they moved us, all the minors, to 16th Street Baptist Church. And there was something about being in that church, King Weekend, my friend the actor being arrested for the first time, and all of it sort of just started to coalesce in my brain. And I started thinking about, I think I knew I wanted to be an artist, but then actually participating in some kind of change also became very real in that moment. Um, and that sort of, I think, shifted everything else I did afterward. Um, for me, and um, again, I was a late bloomer, um, one of the first time issues I became politicized around was around Prop 8 in California, um, in around 2008. And I was still working as a lawyer at the, at the time, but my boss, um, uh, who was a partner at the firm, was an activist, um, an LGBT activist, and she kept uh, a wedding dress in her office. Um, one, because there were she said, you know, she, she would love to marry people and she liked to marry people in her wedding dress. Um, and there was always um, a moment that she felt she always worried. The other lawyers kept their suits in their office. She kept her wedding dress, but she needed to be ready um, to get married whenever she was able to. And so she kept it there and she needed it to uh, go to social protest. Um, and I just remember sitting in her office and hearing about this for the first time, and I sort of moved into this movement and um, worked with an activist named Cleve Jones, um, who um, started the, the AIDS Quilt Project years ago. Um, and he was telling stories around how people across the country were making their own pieces of patches for this quilt and how they came together in this beautiful art project to tell a story that you know, became a, be, uh, began, in, at least in my understanding, a shift about how we talked about HIV and AIDS in this country. Um, and so, yeah, that was a, a moment that sparked for me. Yeah, because I, I did talk a little bit about this, but it reminded me my uncle um, died of AIDS in 1992. And I remember my mother's own um, sort of activism within our family was to 
keep confronting my grandmother, her mother, about calling his partner his best friend. Um, and I just remember being, that was so imprinted on me because it was one within the tragedy of his death, but also that my mother wanted to fight for his life like in that same moment as she was mourning to keep saying to my grandmother, this is not his best friend, this is his partner, this is his husband. You know, and I just remember that so starkly as a moment, one of seeing uh, my mother's own uh, sort of personal political engagement, which she always has, um, but two of also understanding how um, devastation really shows you, um, and trauma sometimes actually shows you where your politics are. Um, and so that, this conversation made me think of that, actually. Um, I wanted to ask you, we're a couple of weeks into 2020. I know it feels like months. I mean, <laughs> the United States has bombed Iran or has assassinated um, one of the, its cabinet members of that country. There's an impeachment trial happening. It already feels like Australia's been on fire. Like, it already feels like a lot has happened in this year. But I want to reflect on 2019 and art that kind of stood out for you. It could be visual art. It could be a film. Um, it could be a campaign, Arisha, that really focused on storytelling um, that you found to be either quite successful or that aspired and reached for something and even in its like kind of failure to reach its goal, you learned some valuable lessons. I, I know that rhetorically we have a lot of language these days for talking about failure, about failing up, but we don't really want to talk about projects that don't quite hit the mark. And I think this is a space to maybe do that. I guess I won't, I won't talk about this as saying it's something that failed, per se, because it is kind of frightening to sort of like start with that. Um, but I, I think there is um, one of my favorite films of the year, because um, I feel like I have to come back to the failure later. Um, one of my favorite films of the year is um, A Love Song for Latasha by Sophia Nali Allison. And so if anybody's seen that, it's playing here. Um, we played it at Black Star first. Um, but it's just such a... Um, Brilliant, brilliant film in that um, Sophia is recreating an archive that doesn't exist. And so it's about like black feminine, female interiority, um, but it also is a documentary, but it's using all these kind of narrative strategies um, in a really beautiful way. And um, it's just something that I, I've seen it more than anything I think this year because it's just been, um, we've, uh, shown it in other places with her um, and also, you know, at the festival. And I just, I don't know, there's something so gorgeous about it. And it's so, um, I've talked to Sophia and so I know how much uh, like deep ancestral work she's been doing. But also I think in kind of like thinking about a culmination of um, influences and experimental doc and thinking about Marlon Riggs and thinking about Julie Dash and it's like all these influences are showing up in this short. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's like a manifestation of a lot of like decades of work. So. And briefly, Latasha would be Latasha Harlins, who of course um, was the young girl who was um, killed by a Korean grocer in LA um, and was a large part of the 1992 LA rebellion. Um, I think of two, two pieces that happened in 2019. I'm one of the people that ha hasn't seen a film yet here, but um, I will. Next year. I will. <laughs> um, uh, you know, at Color of Change, we had been actually doing work trying to push back against R. Kelly and what was happening. Um, we were calling on RCA, and this is back in 2017, calling on them to drop his... Um, drop them from the label, and we were failing miserably. We were having like really bad conversations, really triggering conversations. Myself and my uh, senior campaign director, Brandy Collins Dexter, who grew up on the south side of Chicago, were like failing miserably at like getting any corporations to like take this conversation seriously. Um, and then Dream reached out to us and started telling us about this film or this piece that was she was doing for Lifetime. Um, uh, and we started to get really involved early, um, trying to understand, like hearing some of the stories, getting a sense of the story that would be told, even understanding, um, getting an understanding of when it would come out. Um, uh, and, and this was like really critical um, and a, uh, to the work that we were doing. We were able to amplify a set of demands 
um, around R. Kelly because of the space that was created by surviving R. Kelly. And um, similarly, um, Ava's piece, um, When They See Us, um, uh, allowed us to create a space to talk about the role of prosecutors, um, to talk about juvenile justice. And I think what I loved about both of these, you know, I'm, there's a, a, many amazing films that you can go to a movie theater and see, but what I loved about both of these pieces is that they actually created and held a space for like three days to a week, which is like a lifetime um, in the age of Twitter for us to have a conversation, for us to engage with targets about things that we were concerned about. Um, uh, and for me, that was the best of, uh, of 2019. And Rashida, I've been, we, I made this observation before we, you know, came down here, but this has been an incredible year and couple of years for black visual artists. Um, some whom we've known, a lot of us in this room, have known their work for years, but we're seeing them occupy some really premium public space. Um, this year, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's been happening in 2019 around that. Absolutely. So, um, one of the things that, you know, in my role at the Open Society Foundations, uh, which was really founded for a moment like this, when you see the global rise of fascism um, coming back, and so it's, it's been um, really incredible to see concurrently um, the artists around the world from, from positions of marginalization, marginalization in the global south, um, artists of color in the United States and the West, actually um, occupying so much space, whether it's public space, um, whether it's work that they're doing that we never see. Um, I feel like this is really a moment where they're actually leading us towards um, the progressive kind of thinking that we need to have and the imaginative thinking imaginative thinking that we need to have if we're going to envision the actual world that we want to live in. Um, and so, you know, we spoke about this the other night, but um, Simone Lee had a really important project, which is still on the high line right now, called Brick House. Um, and it's a, a huge um, bust of a bronze bust, actually, which is, um, I think, about three tons, which she cast in clay. Um, and then had it, well, she, she actually sculpted it in clay so that she could use her own hands, but then had it cast in bronze. Um, and we were actually lucky enough to see it being lifted up, and it was like being hoist over 10th Avenue up onto this plinth. Um, and, you know, just sort of watching Instagram and watching um, groups of black women runners actually use that as like a, a North Star and like run from Brooklyn all the way to Brickhouse, um, for example, is, I think, uh, really transformative when we're living in um, Trump, under Trumpism, right? To see um, black, a black woman's um, image and structure sitting in the middle of capitalism, like in the middle of um, the over-gentrification of that space in Manhattan, right on 30th and 10th Avenue. Um, and similarly, we talked about Kehinde Wiley actually having this um, Times Square monument, um, which I think is called Phases of War. Um, it's, so it's a man, it's another bronze statue, a man on um, a horse. And so if you know Kehinde Wiley's work, he's always looking um, really at the sort of great style that black men have um, and um, sort of but putting them in these positions that we usually think of from the history of European art, for example. But this one is very specific because it's actually going to go to Virginia um, at the site where a lot of the monuments that have been taken down by activists over the past few years um, have been monuments to white supremacy and monuments to the Confederacy, et cetera. So all of these um, artists are actually working at this political moment in a space that largely was commercial, I would say, until about two or three years ago. They were you know, sort of functioning as a blue chip artist and their value um, was really sort of about commerce. And now they're being put into these spaces that are highly politicized. So I think that that's actually um, quite a contrast to the political um, moment and the sort of um, revealing of, of all this racial terror. And I think of that work in particular as being in conversation with like Brie Newsom, you know, scaling the flagpole, taking down the Confederate flag with some of the campaigns that, you know, organizations like Color of Change have, you know, ran um, in the South around these actual monuments. Um, so you're seeing like an artist who you, like you're saying, he could make, you know, $30 million a painting, responding and being in dialogue with 
work that, you know, movement is creating. And I think that we see that increasingly. I mean, it's been happening for a while. I don't think that you get a Kendrick Lamar performance at the Grammys a couple of years back that is definitely about the prison industrial complex without all of the movement that had been happening, um, you know, in the proverbial streets. Um, I'll give a kind of like asp like an asp aspirational moment that I wish could would have been a little different, you know. Um, and I'm thinking about Queen and Slim, which was, you know, so beautiful. Um, but I'm thinking about that moment, um, uh, you know, in BLM when the police unions really worked to create a narrative that somehow the protesting of um, state violence and police terror was making them unsafe. So they actually got traction, first of course on Fox News, and then in the larger public dialogue um, about blue lives mattering and about the black lives matter effect, right? And um, one of the things that Color Change does, you know, is they get invited into writers' rooms, you know, to help um, to make, you know, because you think I'm black, I know all this, I know black stuff. <laughs> um, I may not be an activist or a strategist in this space, but I know it. Um, but I think that there was a way in which that scene where the young boy um, killed a police officer at the protest um, absolutely kind of um, helped to legitimize a narrative. And I don't think that Lena Waithe or Melina would would have in their writer's room been thinking, yeah, we're doing the work of the police unions here. Um, but it absolutely helped to legitimize. It was a moment that I wish someone could have been in the writer's room to say, hey, I don't know if you're aware, because often you're not, you know, um, if you're not, like when you're working in isolation, which is what writing is, you unplug from social media. So there might, might have been a moment where you weren't aware that there was this narrative about BLM and the, the effects or whatever. Um, do y'all know what I'm talking about? People follow me on this? Okay, all right. Let's talk about the campaign, um, Oscar So White. Um, we literally saw that change um, the academy. People were invited into the academy, people who they absolutely were not considering inviting into the academy. Um, and because of this campaign, this hashtag that became a campaign, um, that happened. Um, and we're seeing a lot of cultural production, maybe as a result of that. Um, can we talk about like this year and the criticism that we're hearing about this particular Oscars? Do the Oscars matter? Um, Mary, you're someone who's creating, you know, cultural production, and you know, outside of that, you're creating institution, you're institution building. Um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, shortly the Oscars do matter, <laughs> which is why we're talking about them. It impacts the work that everyone involved in a film gets next and all of that. So I feel like we can't, um, I've been really challenged by uh, people sort of in my space wanting to both uphold and then denigrate the Oscars depending on if people they know get nominated, you know, and it kind of feels very reactionary. And so, I mean, personally, they absolutely do matter. I think how much credit or how much credence we give them is sort of where I want to consider. Um, it doesn't impact uh, for me sort of uh, whether or not you know something is going to be in a canon necessarily. I don't look to the Oscars to build a canon, um, but I think they they do matter in capitalism because it's part of this machine. I think it's interesting though to have probably the most diverse voting body and then to have a slate that we have this year. So then that means this problem is not only about the bodies being in the voting pool, it also has to do with many things. And so I think we have to, um, sometimes I think we get caught uh, or fixated on the, like, the thing that seems the most immediate and reactionary when the problems are super, super deep. And it's not just about having black and brown and Asian and Arab folks voting. It's also about the other systems, which I mean, I'm sure everyone is thinking about, but it, it's not just as, it's not a simple fix. And so in some ways, I'm, it's a good thing that this has happened because there's so much more work to do. Do you mind naming some of those systems? Are you talking about production? Are you talking about what gets greenlit? Are you talking about? 
yeah, the actual yes. plot. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's capitalism, it's the patriarchy, I mean, it's all of those things. So it is about um, the projects that are getting greenlit, it's about the pipelines into the system, it's about the lack of um, diversity still in crews. You know what I mean? There's so many things that um, have yet to be solved and it's not gonna happen overnight. This is a generational project. Um, and that's, it's in one industry, right? Like it's a generational project in every sort of thing that we need to be doing, so. I also think about, and this has been true for, since the beginning of like our be organizing in this country, which is the beginning of this country, is how our work kind of lifts all boats, you know? I, I'm very happy um, to see a film like Parasite, you know, be nominated in the way it was, or for Farewell, um, for her to get that nomination and be awarded for her performance. Um, and I remember that being some of the pushback with Oscar So White, like, yeah, we're never gonna get to Asians. Like, I remember that kind of quietly being said. Mm -hmm. And now you're already seeing, like, in a very short time. Um, anyone else have any thoughts on, like, this year's Oscars campaign or Oscar So White at all? Okay. And um, we'd love to hear from, you know, you all. Um, Arisha, what do you need? You talked about, like, you know, the engagement that Ava and I, we very called you, both of us, really early on. But what do you need from artists and cultural producers, like, to do your campaign work? Um, I think, and there are a lot of folks in the room from Color of Change that um, work on this work, like Rashid, and I don't know if Kristen's here, who um, is in our Hollywood office. Um, but the biggest thing that we need is sort of, like, forewarning about a project happening um, and an opportunity to um, uh, engage with the writer's room well before you get so deep into production that like nothing can be changed. Um, and um, we're not here to like fundamentally change the creative or the vision. I think um, we can be another set of eyes to say, well, oh, you're talking about this. Have you thought about this? Or, um, oh, we know this person who's been really impacted by this system. Should we bring this person into your writer's room just to give you color about the lives that they're, they're living? Um, and then also for us as a campaign organization, um, we are looking for moments where um, simultaneous, simultaneously with the content going out that we can actually make demands that we can ask our members, over 1.7 million members, um, that Color of Change asks, uh, that Color of Change has, that we can give them something strategic to do in response to what they're seeing in the world. And so, around surviving R. Kelly, it was demands, you know, calling on RCA to drop um, um, R. Kelly. Uh, there are a number of demands, but we were able to be prepared to understand that there was going to be this huge cultural conversation happening for three days. We we understood that like this was our time to call back Sony and say like, hey, everybody is talking about this. Do you get this? And having that lead time, I, you know, I think it was like four or five months, six months, sort of like knowing it's going to be January, whatever. Um, and this is when we're gonna we're gonna go out strong. Um, was incredibly um, helpful for us in our campaign planning, and I think we actually were able to win campaigns that we weren't we wouldn't have been able to win had we just been like experiencing it like the rest of the world. Like, oh, let me turn to Lifetime today and watch this. Um, so those things are really important to us. Rashida, I want to ask you. I mean, we are, and I don't think it's hyperbolic now. Like you said, some an organization like OSF exists for times when fascism is coming around the corner, up the hill, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, and we talk rhetorically about artists being at the forefront of driving change. Um, we know that 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 they are never the only ones; that they actually need all of this support. Um, and part of your work, of course, is helping to fund activations, possibly production, if you can get in early enough. But in this moment, when we are actually up against so much, and, and I know that you're you know, a global organization, but we can just talk about America, but a lot of us are looking at the entire world right now and seeing a trend towards authoritarianism. Um, can you talk about like how important you think the artist is and in creating culture shifts? I mean, there's been a 40-year project by the right to create a particular culture shift that is, we're seeing it culminate in this moment. And do we have an answer to that? Well, 
a lot of the artists that we have supported through a fellowship called the Soros Arts Fellowship are all around the world. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring them together is that I went, or even have this fellowship, is that I went to Sarajevo like three days after Trump was elected in 2016. And there was a conference called Culture the New Battlefield. Um, and it was really interesting because there were some artist activists from Belgrade that were talking about Rudolph Giuliani coming to Belgrade to actually help facilitate a waterfront redevelopment, which we know he's a master of gentrification, right? And it just clicked immediately that if they are collaborating, which we know they are, we need to be collaborating as artists, right? Um, and so we organized a meeting in Marrakesh, which was the OSF Arts Forum. And the meeting was about this idea of art, public space, and closing societies. And so how do we actually support artists as philanthropy when they are operating under authoritarianism or in some cases ineffectual governments or um, in some cases you know, they have freedom because people aren't paying attention. Um, so our idea of what a closing society was was um, you know, sort of subjective, but of course now we, can, we could consider ourselves in a closing society, right? Um, and so for me it was like how do we actually listen to folks who are working under fascism right now or folks that are working in, in exile or underground because I think that there is a sort of um, dystopic visioning that we need to do about what does the future look like and how can we be prepared for this. And so there's an organization called the Belarus Free Theater, which is supported by Open Society Foundations. Um, and the artistic leaders have been living, the artistic directors have been living in exile in the UK um, for 20 years. And they completely function over Skype. So all of the performances that happen in Minsk on the ground um, are um, illegal. And the audiences have to meet at a public space and then they lead them to this garage where they have the performances. And people are, you know, they can be arrested at any time just for being in the space of art. And I thought this was really interesting and we, um, they came for um, the, what is the festival, the theater festival in New York? Under the radar. Um, and um, we saw it and we were saying it was like literally January 2017. And I felt like it was um, a sort of way to project, you know, how do we actually think about the underground as a space, a generative space? And I think especially as people of African descent coming from maroon communities, coming from um, spaces where we needed subterfuge, where we needed um, cover, I think there is a sort of value in that kind of underground. And I think it's kind of in contrast to this idea of representation and visibility as like um, the thing to celebrate. So I think we have to kind of think about both of those. I happen to know about that Belarus theater company because of the documentary on HBO, Dangerous Acts. And um, it was really, it's a really incredible documentary to watch. And as you were talking about closing societies, I immediately thought of Turkey, you know? Um, and then I thought about how in that society, it was the LGBTQI um, community that was most vulnerable on the, in, on the forefront of receiving the kind of early warning signs of the, fact, of the closing of that society. It began with saying that they could no longer do their um, parade. Um, and then what happened to Turkey and what is happening to Turkey happened. Uganda was another place that my mind went to Uganda, right? And I'm thinking about... Um, all of the work, quite frankly, that white evangelical Christians have been doing in spaces like that, again, the LGBTQI community, that has put them in literal, like, life-threatening danger. People have died in Uganda because some white, and, and there's a good documentary on that, it's called The Family, on Netflix, I think, or Amazon, but um, a, a section of that deals with that. But then I began to think about something that I said we would get back to, which is that in this moment where we should be looking internationally, we absolutely have the right who are making these international moves. Giuliani's in Belgrave. We know that he spends a lot of time in the Ukraine. Um, you know, uh, Steve Bannon was had an eighth century monastery that he was trying to turn into a literal militia training camp. And in this moment, we have a small but loud movement of black folks who are asking that we restrict and, and turn away from like a pan-Africanist or even an internationalist kind of idea and philosophy and way of organizing. Um, and I'm talking about ADOS here. I'm talking about this kind of conservative element in our, org in our communities that are both anti-immigrant, anti-queer, anti, -immigrant, anti, -queer, anti 
um, women-led, um, women leadership. And we see it show up just to stay on, you know, on message and on subject in something like a campaign to shut a movie like Harriet down, uh, the movie about Harriet Tubman, because it didn't have, because the um, actor who was playing Harriet Tubman was African. Of course, Harriet Tubman was also African. Um, she was an enslaved African. Um, but this is like, like Trumpism, that movement, it doesn't depend on a lot of logic. But um, Maori, I would like to talk to you, you know, about like the ways that these conversations, and, and it's like a ha-ha, like look at those silly people like Trump. But Harriet failed at the box office. Um, and that campaign was actually successful in getting people who weren't gonna see the film to have entire threads of discourse um, focused on this very narrow vision of the world that is the very opposite of what a lot of us have testified about in terms of what shaped us politically. Yeah. So Maori, can, have you heard these conversations? What do you think about them? Um, yeah, I have, I feel like there's been some rumblings for the past couple of years and um, separately from ADOS, but it always felt like ADOS was behind it to me um, because I'm really, if we think about the films that we saw in the 80s and 90s, like Steve Biko or even moving forward to um, The Last Emperor, I think was the one about Idi Amin or so any of these opportunities for sort of mainstream films to be made about Africans or Caribbeans, 9.95 out of 10, it's played by an African-American actor. And I feel like there was no problem with that <laughs> as long as it was Denzel. But then when they're British actors who are of African descent, playing roles that I guess people felt were reserved for African-American actors, then all of a sudden we want to sort of have this kind of native sovereignty conversation. And I, I am someone who was definitely raised Pan-Africanist and Black Star's name is even an act of Pan-African sort of like return, right? So, um, you know, it's really, really challenging to me to even have these conversations because why wouldn't we want to be thinking about us as black people um, in a, Pan-African or you know universal sense. So um, I'm never happy about them, and you know I know Spike Lee and Sam Jackson and other people have been participating in them on a higher level, and it seems so short-sighted to me. And one of the reasons it's short-sighted is not just about Black people, right? Like most, a lot of our actors right now, white and Black, <laughs> um, and Asian, are from Europe. You know, if we think about Tony Golding or we think about um, you know, Kate Blanchett, I mean, we could keep going. It's sort of like the Brits and Australians are dominating in all of, for all of us. Um, and so it just, it's, it seems so short-sighted. And then particularly with a case like Harriet, um, we were talking a little bit beforehand. I mean, like you said, she, not only is uh, Harriet an enslaved African, but also um, I had had a conversation with Casey Lemons um, about the film, and she said she signed on to it because Cynthia Revo had been cast, and to her, visually, that she knew the filmmakers were serious, the producers were serious about who they were gonna cast as Harriet. It wasn't gonna be, you know, a, um, some, like, Saldana or sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, it, but it meant that they were serious. And then also, I mean, Cynthia Revo is actually British, but her background, I think, is Sierra Leonean. And so we know that, like, ancestrally, these are, that's us. So it's like so also like wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think um, for the most part, um, to me, that's where I sit with the conversation. But then I think about Queen and Slim, which the, the conversation of course came up again. Um, and I do think in that film in a particular way, and this is just like an aesthetic choice, it's not a political one for me. I do think it's interesting to make a film, from my understanding, that was supposed to be about the kind of textures of African Americana, and then have actors who are then putting on an affect to embody that. And so, but that's, again, that's, a, that's like an artistic choice. I don't feel any kind of way about that politically. I do think it would have been interesting to have people from the Midwest, you know, actually embody those characters, but that's like a super, that's like wanting someone who's already blonde to play a blonde person, you know, and it was just sort of like, um, a very small thing. On ADOS or? <laughs> oh my God. Um, do folks know 
who ADOS is, or, okay, American Descendants of Slavery. It's sort of an online movement that's picked up a lot of steam. Um, I actually, we, Color of Change started looking into this sort of movement in the aftermath of uh, Trump's election, um, in part because there was this, we were seeing, we understood that black folks were targeted with disinformation and misinformation with an intentional effort, in a, in a new way, um, as an intentional effort to suppress or depress um, black voters in that election cycle. Um, and you know, there are a, a number of like right-wing movements, Blexit, um, uh, you know, sort of Candace Owens, what she's doing on the right. Um, and so we started, we sort of entered into looking in, into ADOS from that lens, like is this another like right-wing space? And what we found was actually, I think, a little bit more complicated and nuanced. Um, we were under the belief like, oh, maybe they're just bots, you know? And so we started to look and, and they weren't bots. They're like real people. Um, they're people, some of whom might be Color of Change members also, um, who have signed a Color of Change petition or are active on a team. Um, and, you know, what I find interesting about what they're doing is that they're um, uh, having a conversation about immigration and immigration policy through the lens of a reparations conversation. Um, and uh, um, it, it, it's, it, it was interesting for me to see those two different issues paired together um, uh, and, and to see the places where um, our politics as co at Color of Change like overlap, but also uh, are disconnected from um, a worldview that isn't um, uh, inclusive of all black people. We, you know, we don't use African-American and the way that we talk about, we, we use the word black um, explicitly. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, there's still, we're, there's still a lot, we're, we're still sort of monitoring and watching, you know, part of the reason, not the only reason that we were having a reparations conversation for like a moment, for like a brief second in the pre Democratic presidential primaries is in part because um, of some of the online activism that's happening there, as well as tons of activism that's ha been happening for decades and decades in this country. Um, and, you know, this uh, new, um, I don't know if it's new, this anti-immigrant thread um, that is like black people against other black people um, versus a conversation that maybe 10 years ago was like black versus brown um, is um, something that's like very complicated and um, that we have to figure out how to deal with. On the one hand, I agree that like, one of the things we talk about in our voting work is that like black people are not monolithic. And so often, you know, uh, consul political consultants are just like, it's like all black people and they just wanna hear about criminal justice reform. You don't have to talk about any other issue. Um, and I do think it's important to sort of acknowledge that we are a diverse people, um, but not in a way that sort of turns us against one another, which I think is um, a little bit of what's happening um, with that movement. I mean, and no, however much success they were having advancing anti-immigrant talking points where they really kind of went mainstream, at least for black folks, was with this piece of art, with like this film, you know? So it's interesting to see how other people that you may not be aligned with are using art and media to advance their cultural, even if it's to, if it's to attack. Um, did you have any thoughts on that? Or Yeah, I just wanted okay. to say that, um, you know, working for a foundation founded by George Soros, and he's the president of the foundation, you really run into a lot of this kind of conspiracy theory. And it was shocking to me to see it coming from black people specifically. Um, and we supported Dred Scott's, um, he did a project um, in New Orleans, in Louisiana, which was a reenactment of a slave revolt. And so, he had actors and community members and people who wanted to do this reenactment marching through rural Louisiana to New Orleans um, in the form of what actually happened during this revolt. And some of the people who had done the research around the original revolt, who he wanted to engage with, said, you know, we're not gonna do it because it's supported by Ford and it's supported by Open Society Foundations. And, you know, George Soros is um, pro-Trump and all these things that are like completely um, untrue. And so it really, um, illuminated for me 
really the necessity of us being really clear um, and understanding how these things kind of um, disrupt our own ability to organize. Um, and our own ability to do, to even make artwork, for example, that has a revolutionary um, directive. Um, and so that's been really interesting, especially when you think about George Soros's early philanthropy was actually to give scholarships to black South African students under apartheid. Yeah, I think the disinformation campaigns have been wider and deeper than any of us suspected. And for that, I'm very grateful, actually, for the work of Color of Change, the um, accountability work and the pressure that you've been putting on these platforms um, that are, in some ways, nations at this point. These are multinational corporations that are basically governing. Um, and that work has been really important. If folks aren't familiar with that work, I really encourage you to, to look into it. I'm going to ask you one last question, then I want to open it up to the audience. Um, and it's a simple one. I mean, what issues um, keep you up at night? What do you care about most in this moment? It's 2020. Um, we're looking at the possible collapse of the United States, <laughs> um, or not, you know? Um, what issues keep you up at night? Um, what's coming to my mind, I mean, I feel like so many are, but the environmental crisis, yeah. climate change, um, feels so... Um, trying not to be um, fatalist about it, but it's so entrenched and just, it, you know, plastic, fossil fuels, you know, we just keep going and going. And um, I think that's definitely keeping me up. Um, a big part of my job is around this election. I don't know if it keeps me up, but like it definitely wakes me up in the morning. I'm a good sleeper. Um, <laughs> and I like sleep well when I'm stressed out, like really well. Um, uh, but this upcoming election is, um, I think, incredibly terrifying. Um, uh, the ways in which black folks will be engaged um, during this cycle um, scares me uh, because, um, you know, the types of messages that we will be receiving uh, will resonate with us in a lot of ways. It'll be an extension of the super predator ad that sort of circulated, like these were like true things, um, and yet there was an intention behind, an intentionality behind um, the messaging that was incredibly nefarious and actually, I, I think, pushes down um, black folks' sense of agency and power. Um, could, could an example of that be like um, Kanye saying that the Democratic Party is a plantation? Yes. Okay. Yes. And we'd be seeing those like in places like online ads. We will. I mean, it, it, they're actually it's it's going to be less ads and it's more like groups, random groups that you're invited to on Facebook, um, um, or it'll be in the 2016 election. Um, one of the most circulated articles, I think, the most circulated article was um, a Michelle Alexander piece um, that was talking about um, why she was supporting Bernie. Um, and not Hillary. Um, and so there'll be like the amplification of like real things. Like we at Color of Change believe that, you know, um, uh, the parties, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have in lots of ways left black people out in the cold. Like that our elected officials haven't shown up for us in ways that they should. And yet um, what you do with that is not stay home. You know, um, uh, you know that that's not like a logical conclusion. If you want, if you want reparations in America, the, lo the logical conclusion isn't go vote for Republicans. Um, and so, um, it's those types of things um, that sort of pull at real threads, pull at real things, um, but then ask people to do something to make a choice that doesn't actually connect with the change that they want to see. Um, that really worries me. I'm worried about everything that both of you just said, and particularly climate change, really, especially um, communities of color being at the front lines of climate change, whether we're indigenous communities, Caribbean communities, and actually um, not actually being asked to be the authors of the solutions. Um, and I think that that is actually terrifying to me when the same people who created the issue are the ones that are trying to solve it, because um, I don't think that's possible. And I think, um, you know, when we look at the actual kind of research around communities that are, um, you know, still run by indigenous um, uh, nations, those, those landscapes are still more intact, right? And so 
that seems pretty obvious, but for whatever reason, well, we know the reasons, white supremacy, patriarchy, power, et cetera, we're not actually going for the solution. And so I feel like that's terrifying. And that would be an example of like Exxon or BP having these big billboards in the South about how they're the new environmental movement, right? Those kinds of Okay, well, thank you so much. Let's um, get a, we have an extra microphone and I would like to open it up to questions. I know that we uncovered a lot of ground, so. Um, my name is Rebecca Henderson, AKA the Tan Tigers, it's a thing. Um, I wanted to thank all of you for the work that you've done and um, particularly you dream because I'm working on a project now that I will really hope will influence the 2020 elections. It's about women of color running and all that. But one of the things that I think is so important is getting people to do things. And so for me, it made me, making the film made me get incredibly active in my community. And one of my lines that I use is I say, look, nothing good happens without a documentary. Ask R. Kelly. So you, you did that, and I'm, I'm so honored to like be in your presence, and I am gonna miss yeah. my flight, so I got to go. <laughs> thank you. It was thank a, you. There was a team of us, and we were led by the survivors, but thank you, thank you so much. Hi there, my Hi. question is, um, there's been so much information that you guys have given us today. What, where do we start? Where do um, people who are curious, maybe don't know a lot about the Pan-African um, movements of the past, where do we, one, really get educated accurately, and two, find the, the places, the spaces to participate um, while committing to all the other things that um, society's asking of us right now? I was actually just gonna say, um, become a member of Color Change and go to the Black Star Film Festival. But, but I would also say absolutely do those two things. But since we're talking about you know, narrative and some of these films that we're seeing, I mean, and even, I, I guess it's about not narrowing. Like, I just, I, I talked about, um, you know, having seen a documentary yesterday about the surveillance state. And um, we know that it's in China. Um, and it's, it's amazing to watch how the Hong Kong protesters are in real time fighting back against that. You know, um, the lasers that they were using to confuse the cameras that ID them that because all of China is wired for facial recognition. Um, and then, you know, the film that I was watching talked about, you know, it showing up in London on the CCTV. Um, you know, I myself, you know, you know, if I want to bring it back to the domestic, I, I went on an international flight recently, <laughs> departed from the U.S., without any warning, boarded a plane where there was a facial recognition device. They didn't want my passport anymore, right? So I am watching a surveillance state, like an, an inevitable, I'm watching the inevitable, I'm watching people in different places, learning from them, learning how Hong Kong protesters are at once fighting back against that. I'm learning that from films, uh, because as she just said, you know, documentaries where we learned so much of this, um, I'm also watching it real time on the news, you know? I, I guess what I'm afraid of when I think of like this kind of narrowing, and I, and I understand the impulse to like center oneself and one's own, be concerned about one's own rights and one's own problems, right? But I also know how much I can learn from what folks are doing around the world. Um, so that's what I think I mean when I'm talking about, you know, um, turning away from this narrowing. But in terms of Pan-Africanist uh, Pan philosophy, there's Kwame Ture, um, the former Stokely Carmichael. Um, of course, we know that W.E.B. Du Bois, his later life, he died in Ghana. Uh, he and his wife, Shirley. Shirley Du Bois, his wife, started the first Ghanaian TV station um, to bring it right back to media. <laughs> um, so his later writings are very important. You know, with Du Bois, I think that we think of him like we think of King. We have this very narrow way of thinking about, oh, he's the author of The Talented Tenth, but there is a full life that he was actually able to lead, unlike Dr. King, um, that becomes far more radical and internationalist in, in, a, in the later years. So I think those um, late papers by Dr. Du Bois are important. And I think that Stokely Carmichael is good. And, and for fun, like for like lighter reading, um, Maya Angelou's, um, her series of autobiographies that begins with When the Cage Bird Sings, but takes you on this journey where she's at, you know, parties, house parties with Malcolm X in Ghana. 
um, and to study Malcolm's life is always, I think, such an important point where, you know, Maori talks about being 14 when Spike's movie came out. So I know that at this point, he belongs almost in some people's minds to some history and to like he, you know, he, another generation, um, which wasn't my experience. He felt very present. I grew up listening to his speeches on tapes. But, you know, um, Malcolm at the end of his life is in Palestine. Um, he's meeting, uh, in, having meetings in Egypt and in West Africa um, and bringing all of this home to Harlem. So I think there are so many examples. Um, and, and of course, Mary said that, you know, Black Star Film Festival is named after Marcus Garvey's dream of, of a Black Star ship. So I think that, you know, everyone from Du Bois to Maya Angelou to Stokely Carmichael would be a good place to. And then watch African films. I mean, my God, in the, in the now, Nigeria um, uh, is, you know, making like, more, I think they outpace Nollywood. I mean, Bollywood. Nollywood has outpaced Bollywood. And how often, when we're on these flights, when we have the option to watch those films, do we? Like, they've actually gotten good. They're not all soap operas anymore. Um, and yeah. I guess the only thing um, that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I feel like we had talked a little bit about, but um, one of the things that um, has been important in the work that um, we've been doing at Black Star is also thinking about not only a kind of Pan-African solidarity, but um, broader kind of uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color allyship. Um, and when I think about my mother used to always sort of say to me that what made Fran Hampton and what made the Panthers scary is that they were, she was like, it wasn't that they were carrying guns, it's that they were coalition building. And that always stuck with me um, as a child and moving forward and thinking about when things get shut down is when they get too massive, you know, when the masses are too um, participating. And so um, what we've been trying to do with Black Star, because um, more than any other group of people in this country, black people have more representation. It's not enough, as we all know, but we have a little bit more. Um, we have been able to take this project and go sort of beyond representation and think about um, what exactly do we want to see. So it's not just okay that something stars a black person or is made by a black person. My project with Black Star has been to kind of try, we wanna push the form, we wanna recreate and represent something. Um, and so other people of color have been finding themselves um, in that and wanting to be a part of that project. And so we started out as a Pan-African, African diaspora project, but we've now um, expanded to black indigenous and people of color because we were getting these submissions and people were knocking down the door because they also wanted to participate in this kind of um, not only uh, representative project, but one that was aesthetic and political um, and merging the two. And so I think that conversation is really important. Um, I've been in too many rooms, unfortunately, um, talking about film and television with black people and hearing folks say like, well, you know, we have X amount of shows, we made it. And I'm like, well, where are the Arab folks? Where are the Latinx folks? Where are the indigenous folks? Where are the East Asian folks, the South Asian folks? If we're not all sort of um, all participating and reflective of what the country actually looks like, then we actually have not made it because it's so easy to keep us separated. That's how you knock us down, right? So it's not okay um, if X number of black people make it and we still don't see everybody else. So I'm always trying to like say that on panels. So that would be my last statement. I'll just do a quick plug. Um, for uh, you, uh, in order to become a member of Color of Change, all you have to do is start taking an action on a petition, and we send them out fa fairly regu regularly. Rashad had folks text injustice to 225568. If you're not already a Color of Change member, if you like answer some of those questions, like what's your email address, it'll get you on a path um, to be able to receive those mailings. And then also, I just wanted to make a plug um, for the Tell Black Stories podcast. Um, um, that is constantly trying to um, amplify um, those that are telling amazing stories about black people. And you can do that by downloading a podcast. <laughs> um, the final thought that I wanted to share is actually inspired by what you said, Mayori. Um, the, the Open Society Foundations launched a restitution and cultural heritage initiative in November for $15 million to support um, African nations actually asking for their um, objects, cultural objects, um, and um, oral histories, remains, et cetera, back to the continent. And um, at the Sydney Biennial in March, 
which is the first biennial in Sydney that is actually curated by an indigenous curator and will feature primarily indigenous artists from around the world. We will have a symposium with leaders, artists, activists on the continent and also indigenous artists, activists around this idea of restitution because um, First Nations have actually made a lot of progress in terms of getting their um, remains back in their objects, et cetera. And so how do we share with each other is, is something that uh, we're also doing with this initiative. And I'd like to go back to something Rashad said when he was in, um, doing an introduction to this panel, and it's about the, um, pr the report that um, Color Change just produced um, with Norman Lear and USC. And um, it's about crime procedurals, which affect our everyday lives, the way that you get treated, your family gets treated when they stand before a judge, the kind of interactions that you have, not only with the police, but all kinds of folks in, our, in, the, in the world, <laughs> in this country, are affected by television. Quite frankly, um, these you know, studies have already been done but about how these two things are linked. But what we were able to do with this report, which you can find on changehollywood.org, is really like arm people who are trying to make change inside of these writers rooms and these networks with the data and the facts that they need to make real change. This is not um, a report that's gonna tell you only what you know. It's a real deep dive into, um, for instance, SUV. I know people don't wanna raise their hands to admit that they watch. <laughs> They're like, my mama watches Law & Order, not me, right? But SUV, which is the last of the Law & Order shows, has absolutely no black people in the writer's room. So it wasn't, there was not one. And 52, 55% of the writers on SUV, which is a show only about, is it SVU? Am I saying it wrong? SVU, SUV is what I'm driving, right? <laughs> SVU um, has 55% uh, men in the writer's room. Um, you know, so I really encourage people to go to changehollywood.org um, and check out the um, report that we just did on crime procedurals. And thank you so much, panel, for your thoughts. Thank you.